0: Namo Thassa bhagavato Bhagavato. Arahato, Sama Samputasa Namo Thassa Bhagavata Nara Sama samputasa
1: samma
0: Namo bhagavato, bhagavato. Arahato. arahato sama samputasa, sama
1: samputasa.
0: Budang samputasa nam saranam gochami
1: nam saranam gochami.
0: sangam saranam gochami
1: sangam saranam krshami
0: dutiyam Duti pe saranam gochami bhudang saranam gochami. dutiyam Amang Saranango chami,
1: chami.
0: Dutiampi, Ampi, Duty Ampi,
1: Sangang
0: Budang Chami Sangang Tatiampi,
1: Tatiampi,
0: Dhammam Saranango Chami,
1: Dhammam Saranango Chami,
0: Tatiampi, Tatiampi, Sangam Saranango Chami,
1: Sangam Saranango Chami,
0: Panati Pata, Panati Pata, We Ramani, Sikapadam,
1: Padam
0: Samadhyami Adinadana Veyramani Sikha Padam, Padam Samadhyami
1: Aduna
0: Abrahma Charya Veyramani, Veyramani. Padam Samadhyami,
1: Samadhyami.
0: Musawada
1: Musawada
0: Wairamani Sikapadam Samadhyami. Samadhyami Sura Marya maja Madana Wairamani Sikha Padam, Sikha padam Samadhyami.
1: Samadhyami
0: The Eight Precepts We Kala Bhojana We Ramani Sikha Padam, padam. Samadhiyami Nacha. Nacha Gita Wadita Visukadasana Malaganda Malaganda Vilepana vile dharana, dharana Mandana Mandana Bibusanathana Weramani Sikapadam Sikabad Samadyami Mahasayana we Sikapadam we everybody Idame
1: e sīlaṃ
0: maga paḷāṇiyānasa maga, sa maga,
1: sa
0: maga sa pacayo
1: pacayo
0: pachayo, Potu pachayo
1: Potu
2: again. Is there Vipassana burnout? (laughs) If so, please describe the symptoms (laughs) so that we may play the edge but not go beyond what is helpful to the practice. I think there is a Vipassana burnout, although it's usually temporary. And it really has to do with understanding the subtleties of right effort. There's a very different quality in the mind when we're practicing, when we're observing in the moment wanting something, and when we're observing in the moment out of interest. If we're practicing with a strong sense of wanting something in the moment, given enough intensity and enough times when we don't get what we want, the mind is going to begin to get burned out or discouraged, because there's a tension in that, there's a tightness. If we're watching the moment and observing it carefully with a place of interest, That's a very different feeling. That's a very different quality or energy with which we're observing. And that interest can come very close. It can be very microscopic and very sustained, but that will be in a balanced way. And I think you'll find that when there's that practice out of interest in what's happening, from that place the energy can continue to grow and get very strong. So the burnout happens when there is a wanting, when there's an over-efforting, an over-reaching. There's another question which comes a little later, but which was related to this. Which was, how can you have a goal in practice without having expectations? And this is a this is quite a crucial question. Because there is a goal, there is a vision. This is a path that actually leads someplace. The balance became very obvious to me just in walking over here tonight from the house next door. I was walking through the woods and it was dark. And there was, I had my flashlight but it was going through, you know, the trees and the roots. And it's clear that I had an expectation in my mind that I was going to reach the building. (laughs) I mean, that expectation set the direction, put me on the path, kept me going. But as soon as I was doing anything more than really paying quite careful attention to where I was stepping, I started tripping on the roots and the uneven ground. And so I think that one of the problems comes because in English we use the word expectation in several different ways. If we use it in the sense of a general expectation of where something is going, where something is leading, that's fine. That's not a problem and I think it can actually empower the practice. If we're taking it to mean that quality of wanting in the moment and expectation in the moment for something in particular to happen, then it's a problem. That gets in the way. We can let go of that wanting in the moment and still have a very clear sense of the unfolding of the path. Can you please give a talk just on how practicing is practicing for the welfare of all beings? I have a sense of it, but I don't feel it very deeply. It's really a beautiful question. You know. How is it that our practice is not only for ourselves, but for all beings? Touches upon something I mentioned this morning at the eight o'clock sitting. which is that as we come to an understanding of the nature of this mind and body, that that nature is universal. And so, we begin to get a much deeper sense of the commonality of us all. The differences are seen to be relatively su- superficial. The differences of certain kinds of conditioning. You know, and our personalities are different, and the content of our thoughts and the look of our bodies are different, but the way it's all happening is just the same. To the degree that we understand this, we begin to relate to other beings in a very different way. It's much less a sense of separation much less a sense of people being different. This, this has been so noticeable to me, you know, in traveling a lot to very different cultures and teaching. And I think I'm, I might have mentioned to you, just coming back from the Soviet Union, where conditions are so different and the way people are are quite different. And yet when we got to the practice, it was the same stuff. It was the same knee pain in the same wandering mind and the same hindrances. And so the, the connections were so close and so deep so quickly because it's all the same. So that's on one level. You know, we're practicing for all beings in terms of coming to an understanding of all beings. We practice for others in another way as well. And that is the recognition, which is really a tremendous empowerment that our lives have an effect in this world. Precisely because we are not separate entities. Precisely because everything is interdependent. There are so many levels of connections between everything that the quality of our mind and the quality of our heart is going to have an effect. There's a new science or re- a yeah, relatively new science which is called the science of chaos You know, and it's just, it's seeing that underneath the ordinary patterns of things, things are very chaotic and hard to understand. And yet if you go into the chaos underneath that, there are very wonderful and indescribable patterns that are happening within the chaos. Part of all this, and what I've just said is everything I know about this,
1: <laughs>
2: but there was one example which I loved so much in that book. It, it has to do with this principle principle of sensitive dependence on initial causes, which means a little input into a system has a huge output, and the example given is that of a butterfly flapping its wings in China, setting in motion the chain of causes for a storm to happen in Boston. That's how interconnected. And this is not like from a poetry book. (laughs) This is from the latest science book. And so it just becomes so obvious, the more sensitive we are to the interdependence of things, it's so clear that the energy with which we're living has, has an obvious effect on the people we actually come into contact with, but it has a much greater effect even than that. I mean, just just imagine for a moment, you know, the Buddha did something more than 2,500 years ago in Bodh Gaya, India, and we're sitting together here. And that's quite amazing, there's some chain of events which, you know, spans a couple of thousand years, so many different cultures and countries and continents. And so each, each one of us is having, you know, a particular kind of effect. The, the more pure we are, the freer we are of greed and hatred and delusion. It is really for all beings. I think that that sometimes reflecting on that can really um, infuse the practice with a spaciousness. You know, sometimes from day to day and sitting to walking, it can get seem very closed in or very tight. Just sometimes a moment of reflection about really what it's all about um, can be very opening. This next question really is the same in a way. In the larger vision of things, is there any ultimate purpose to beings becoming enlightened? And, And it's just that same issue. You know, of the power, the power of that level of wisdom in the world. Why is not seeing dukkha, dukkha? See, this is really a great situation, if you see it, it's dukkha, and if you don't see it, it's dukkha. (laughs) It really points to the universality of (laughs) Dukkha. But not seeing it is worse Dukkha. And again, it's more suffering for a couple of reasons. Just a few simple examples. When we're not seeing that something is suffering or painful. For example, Suppose suppose there's a lot of tension in the body and we're not aware of it. We don't know it. We're carrying it around. It's conditioning how we are. Our minds are actually quite identified with it in an unconscious way. And so not only is there the actual tension that may be there, there's the additional tension of the Tightening around the identification. And you've noticed, I'm sure, at at least at times, just that difference. You know, you may be feeling some pain or discomfort in your sitting or walking, but it's not yet conscious. You really haven't turned your attention to it. And then when it becomes predominant enough, and the mind finally opens to that discomfort, there's that sense of. Shh. You know it's like by opening to it there's a relaxation. That relaxation comes from an acceptance of it, from a seeing of it. The painful feeling may still be there, but our relationship to it is very different. Our relationship to it is one of peace rather than one of delusion or not seeing. This happens also very much with emotions, with unpleasant or painful emotions. Some time ago, I think it was sometime last year, a situation arose for me and I was really embarrassed by it. Just this strong, strong feeling of embarrassment. But I I wasn't aware that that was the feeling. And all the time until I became aware, there was so much suffering because I knew that there was this very uncomfortable state. I didn't see it. I didn't know what it was. And I was trying in every way I could imagine to just get out of that situation, out of that state. And after suffering for some time like this, I said, okay, what is going on here? And I just kind of settled back. I took a look, oh yeah, this is is the feeling of embarrassment. In that moment, all the dukkha of it went away. It's like it was just a feeling. And the feeling was there and I could relate to it. And it left. So the non-seeing keeps us locked in and the seeing of it is what allows us to open for things to wash through. There's one other way not seeing dukkha is dukkha, which has to do with an interesting karmic point, which often people don't uh, consider, which is that it's more wholesome to do something which is unskillful and know it's unskillful than to do something which is unskillful and not to know it. And I think that in some way is quite opposite to conventional, the conventional wisdom, which is, well, you know, if you didn't know it was unwholesome, it doesn't matter so much. You're not kind of, there's not a, Moral demerit there because she didn't know. But from the Buddhist perspective of understanding the mind, it's actually better to do it and to know it's unskillful because in that there is a seed of wisdom. In that there is the possibility of coming to understanding and actually at some point refraining from that kind of action. Whereas if we don't know, We're compounding the the actual action with the mental state of delusion and ignorance. And the power of that ignorance is tremendous, as we see in the world. Ignorance is this tremendous, darkening force. When we don't know, we can't discriminate between skillful and unskillful. And so we're just led by habits of conditioning and desire. Without the wisdom of that discrimination, there's not the possibility of making some wise choices. And so in this way too, being aware of dukkha, or in this sense unwholesomeness, is a much freer state than if we're just going along enmeshed in it and identified with it and lost in it and not knowing So all of this is to say that as you open to the different kinds of dukkha, you should rejoice. (laughs) It's an opening to understanding. Are mindfulness and spontaneity compatible, or does one kill the other? This also is quite interesting because it points to a conventional understanding of spontaneity which I think is not spontaneity at all. We kind of have an idea very often that unconsidered behavior is spontaneous and that there's something noble about that. But what is that? That's really just acting as a slave to conditioning. It's not that it's some great, noble, spontaneous, pure heart that's creating all of these actions. Maybe occasionally it's that, but it could just as well be you know, all the habit formations of desire and greed and anger and fear and just causing us to act without any reflection, and we call that spontaneous. It's actually just it's rather mechanical. How many times, you know, and it becomes so apparent on a retreat, you know, when you're trying to note intention, how many times have you found yourself in the middle of doing something before you know, you know, that you've even started it? That's asleep. That's mechanical. That's, you know, it's like sleepwalking. That's not spontaneity. There is a spontaneity, which really reveals itself very beautifully in the practice. And that is the spontaneity of the very process. You know, when there's a momentum, a certain momentum of energy and mindfulness and concentration, and there's a certain momentum built up, And we begin to experience things as just arising and passing by themselves. We begin to see the intrinsic spontaneity of what's going on. We don't invite things. We're not sitting inviting thoughts, inviting the breath, inviting sensation. It's this incredible dance of elements singing themselves. That's a much deeper sense, I think, of spontaneity, you know, which really is at the essence of who we are. That's very different than sort of mechanical, conditioned behavior. And so, in this sense, I think mindfulness actually is the key to spontaneity. Mindfulness is the vehicle through which we can open up to this level, you know, of the process of things arising and vanishing. Here were a few questions, all related. Has anyone attained enlightenment on one of these three month courses? (laughs) (laughs) Please answer
1: this.
2: (laughs) I felt compelled to (laughs) to. Would you consider any living beings to be fully enlightened, or is it not skillful to say? What is entering the stream? How long does it usually take a person to open to this level of practice? What is meant by the small stream entry? So, all the questions about enlightenment. I want to say a few different things about this and we'll see if they fit together in some way. Just as a kind of very quick overview, (coughs) one of the models which describes the course of practice (coughs) is... a sequence of different stages or phases of insight, which all have quite unique flavors. And as people do the practice, very often they go through these stages in a fairly classical manner. And one way of understanding them is Different perspectives on the three characteristics. Impermanence, dukkha, and selflessness. And so the stages really are a spiral. We keep going around and around. Seeing these three characteristics from different perspectives. And from deeper and deeper levels. So that's one way of understanding. Sort of this journey of insight. Another way of understanding it is different perspectives. Sometimes the mind is really tuning in to the arising of phenomena. Sometimes it's tuning in to both the arising and passing away. Sometimes it's tuning in just to the passing away. And so in addition to the perspectives on the three characteristics, we are also continually seeing phenomena from different perspectives. You know, the beginnings of things, the ending of things. Both the beginning and the ending. Sometimes we're in phases of tremendous joy. Sometimes we're in phases of tremendous dukkha. Sometimes we're in phases of very deep equanimity. So that's another general pattern. So we practice and we just go through all of these different perspectives on reality, on, on experience. So we see it from a lot of different angles. We're getting a very full picture of this mandala. When conditions are ripe, when all the conditions are right, then the mind can open to what is called the unconditioned, unibbana, which is which is a reality. Beyond this mind body process. There's a very telling line from a Tibetan text which describes this. It is, but it doesn't exist. I mean, what we're experiencing in our practice, we're coming to a deep understanding of the nature of existence. Of existing things, of conditioned things. There is another reality which doesn't exist, but which is. Or in a Taoist text, it's called the isness of non being. Uh, talking about very subtle things here. This first glimpse is called stream entry. It's just the first taste, and it might be just a moment, just a split second. And that split second can have varying degrees of intensity. Sometimes people don't even know it happened. Sometimes it effects a radical transformation, which is very obvious. So there's a whole range even to that experience. Enlightenment is said to go in stages. And so this is the first stage, it's called the first stage of enlightenment or stream entry. Then we go through the, the same process of seeing the things that we're seeing now, all the elements of mind and body, and we see them from all of those different perspectives, we go through the same journey, the same path again, open to the unconditioned again to the second stage of enlightenment, third and fourth. What is called little stream entry, it's called Chula Sotapanna, which is the Pali, it talks about a very important phase which happens before that first glimpse of Nibbana, but it's that place in the series of insights in which one is seeing very clearly and sharply and distinctly the momentary arising and passing of phenomena. And this is considered to be tremendously important because it's really from that place that we have broken through a real sense of the solidity of this body, the solidity of the sense of self. At that phase in practice, the factors of enlightenment are quite well developed. There's still a lot of work to do, but the momentum is there. And it's likened to somebody whose arm is raised. And you know that at a certain point, the arm will come down. That's This little stream entry is like, there's still a lot of work to do, but... All the momentum, you know, is leading in that direction. Okay, this is one piece that I'd like to say, just to kind of give, you know, a very general map. Another piece that's very important. Something Munindraji told me very or early on in my practice, and it was of tremendous help to me. He said, in spiritual practice, time is not a factor. Because the development of this transformation of consciousness, this purification process, depends on so many conditions. And some of these conditions we are effecting right now through our practice. Other conditions are outside of the immediate practice. And so we can never know all the conditions. We can do our practice, we can be on the path, walking in the direction of enlightenment, of freedom. And then it is really and genuinely a question of surrender because we don't know when the conditions are going to ripen. It could be three months, it could be three years, it could be 30 years, it could be three lifetimes. One of the things that I've found very inspiring about reading the texts, especially with respect to our culture, which is so, I want everything now, you know, you read of monks and nuns and lay people, 60 years they practice, and then psh, You know the story of one monk who's doing the walking meditation. In the middle of a step, he dies, reborn in one of the deva worlds, continues walking,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and gets enlightened. <laughs> So I think it's really helpful. I think it's helpful both to have a sense of where it's all leading. And I think there's a real spiritual maturity in being able to hold the sense of vision and goal and, yes, we're going, we're going someplace. And at the same time to realize that the path is just to take one step after another and to surrender because we can't know when all the conditions are going to ripen. And so it's this combination both of urgency and also of softness, of surrender, of opening, of letting the Dhamma unfold in its own way. And in that way we can really do the practice fully. We can have a sense of vision and yet stay very, very balanced in it. In terms of what has happened in past three month courses, there are many people who have experienced that that chula sotapana, you know, have really gotten to that place of seeing the arising and passing of phenomena and even much deeper stages than that. There are some who have experienced the first the first stage. Nobody I know has become fully enlightened. Of course, reading the last question, uh, would you consider any living being to be fully enlightened? They don't usually say. (laughs) (laughs) So there may be some of you out there that are just keeping quiet. (laughs) So I hope this... There's something very... for me, there's something very comforting in the vastness of the vision. You know, where we see that both the enormity of what needs to be done in terms of the the genuine purification of our hearts and minds. Just the last retreat I did with Upandita in Australia, this radical thought came into my mind. And it was the the first time I thought of it in just this way. I thought, what would it be like actually just to give up every desire? It's like every desire that arises in the mind just let go of it. And it was such a startling thought. You know, first that it was possible, that actually it is possible to do that. And then I thought of all the desires, (laughs) you know, the chocolate cake, (laughs) this and that. And I realized this is a big task. So, it's kind of putting all of this together, you know, seeing the largeness of it, seeing the value, the preciousness of the opportunity to be actually doing the work, feeling the urgency, feeling the balance, feeling the surrender, kind of getting this whole picture and really is a tremendous support for undertaking the practice. You mentioned honoring one's parents recently. Concerning a rigid, controlling parent, how can I honor this man when I don't even want to be in his vicinity? It feels like I've given much energy toward healing this relationship and it simply hasn't healed. Help. I think sometimes the traditional Buddhist texts Uh, Did not have American culture in mind. (laughs) You know, there's a very classic text think of every being as your mother. (laughs) The implication being having, you know, this unbounded love towards all beings. We seem to have more (laughs) (laughs) problems with our parents or our children. But I think there's a really important principle here. It's very obvious that, regardless of our particular relationship to our parents, there is a very special karmic connection. It's not by accident that we're born to a particular parents. And in some way, besides the fact of having actually given birth to us, in some way, however they are or were, we're here connected to the Dharma. And so something worked out really beautifully. And even if it's in a kind of reaction to the dukkha of it all, There's something which is very wonderful about how all of our lives have unfolded, that we even come to hear the Dharma, which is so rare. Some reflections which might help in sort of working in situations when, you know, our parents are difficult, or the relationship is difficult. One of the hardest things to do, and I think what is one of the most helpful things to do, is not to expect them to be any different. Because if we're relating with this wanting them to be other than how they are, it creates a lot of tension and a lot of conflict. Rigid controlling parent. Fine. Have you seen a rigid, controlling mind in yourself? You know, we all have all of these parts, and we act them out in different ways. The same kind of acceptance and compassion that we're trying to generate towards everything that we're seeing in ourselves I mean, non reactiveness, non judgment, non evaluation, just seeing it that's that doesn't mean that we have to like it, but we can be genuinely accepting and genuinely compassionate. We practice on ourselves. The test is when you go home. That's the final exam. That's why people keep coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't make it that time. (laughs) Also, if you can remember the proximate cause of metta, which is even when people have a lot of, kind of negative qualities and negative tendencies, almost everybody has some endearing quality. Focus on that. Just really aim your mind, look at that part, because that will help to create some feeling of metta, of loving kindness. And there's also the reflection, no matter how you know our psychological relationship with our parents is, or how they were towards us, somebody took care of us when we were completely unable to take care of ourselves. You know, and usually, for most people, it was their parents people acting as parents that is a great gift they may have had their own psychological uptightness and confusion but we're here because of that and so the Buddha he really emphasized the debt that we have towards our parents uh, for that kind of giving that kind of generosity which actually enabled us to stay alive And so, just these considerations, it's not to deny that there are often a lot of difficulties and a lot of problems. And it's not that, you know, they are going to probably change. But can we just get to an accepting space, really feeling metta and compassion? I think working on that. Is really a very important part of the practice um, because when we're disconnected or or really um, cut off in a in a fundamental way, I think there's a, a level of there's a level of dukkha in the mind which comes from that. And so I think it's worth our effort to just try to keep the channels open and to try to just be there for how they are. And it's not always easy. And, yeah? Can, can, can I add something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that a lot, but it's really hanging in there for the long haul. And of course, there are probably some parents who have this problem with their children. As I'm getting older, I'm seeing that side of it more. (laughs) (laughs) This was a question which was, sorry, caller was asked one morning. about reincarnation. And if I recall, it had to do with if there's no self, who gets reincarnated or reborn? Just to clarify on a technical point, um, there's a distinction made between reincarnation and rebirth. Because the implication in reincarnation is that there is some soul, or some entity, which goes from one life to another which goes from one body to another. It's not what the Buddha taught. He taught this process of rebirth, which means that each moment is conditioning the arising of the next, but that there's nothing which is carried, there's no unchanging part which goes from one moment to the next or from one life to the next. And really the, the way we can understand this process of rebirth most clearly and most immediately for ourselves is to see how it's happening in each moment. And through the practice, as, as our attention gets more refined and we see this process of consciousness and object arising and vanishing in a new moment, Consciousness and object, arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. We're actually seeing that. We're seeing birth and death and rebirth, death, moment after moment. What happens at the time of death is simply an extrapolation of that very same process. It will be clearer without the aversion. (laughs) Uh, What it takes is kind of this build-up of momentum that I've been talking of, the momentum of noting. To do that, like moments of aversion, moments of grasping, moments of forgetting, those particular moments, when we're not mindful, they weaken the momentum. Okay? And so, in every moment of noting or of mindfulness, where there's, there's not that reactiveness of mind, it's growing stronger and stronger. At a certain point in that momentum, when it really just takes off by itself, you know, it's like the whole thing is going by itself. We start going through various of those phases that I mentioned, Some of the phases are dukkha filled. And especially as we enter into them, it's like often this subtle forms of aversion in our relationship, you know, to what's going on. But the momentum is so strong that the aversion is not actually. it's coloring our vision of the process but we're still seeing that arising and passing very clearly and through that momentum the aversion balances out and we we come to an easy acceptance of even the dukkha stages did you follow that? (laughs) sometimes I see my mind just kind of (laughs) these are a few questions about karma could you talk more about the ownership of karma particularly as it relates to the seemingly endless recurrence of psycho-emotional patterns also we seem to get involved in trying to give our karma away or mistakenly take on others' karma at some point in the practice does the truth of the doctrine of karma become self-evident empirically or experientially verified the doctrine is very appealing to me as a way of giving, us, giving up, blaming and defending and feeling the victim. But the world is full of comforting doctrines. How can I test it? How will it become self-evident to me? Can you talk about abortion from the Buddhist perspective? What are the karmic consequences for both the mother and aborted being? Is motivation a factor or remorse? Are there ways of purifying this karma? <sighs>
1: this <is> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> One of the great interlocking understandings of Buddha Dharma is that of understanding the law of karma and also understanding emptiness, emptiness of self on the surface they appear contradictory. that is if there's no self, no one being who you know who goes through it all, Then who experiences the future result? But sort of, you know, just as in that science of chaos, as you go deeper, the apparent contradiction actually becomes quite easily understood and you see that they are actually um, two sides of the same process. The law of karma is basically a law, it's a moral law of cause and effect. It's saying that certain actions, which are motivated by certain factors of mind, bring about certain results. And so it's really like planting seeds. Every volitional action is a seed. And the kind of seed it is, Depends on the quality of the mind. That seed will bear fruit. It's not that that process is happening to someone. It's not that someone is the owner. What we are is this process of transformation which is happening according to certain laws. And one of the laws is this law of karma. And so all of these elements of mind and body are arising and passing, arising and passing, changing continually. There's no one behind it. It's not happening to someone. What we call self is this changing process. It's a process of continually changing elements, continually transforming, and transforming lawfully. The law of karma is one of the laws. It's not the only law which is governing the process. And we go out on a hot day and we start to feel warm. That's not karmic. There there are just some basic physical laws at work as well, which have nothing to do with karma. And so we can just understand... the unfolding of our lives as being a lawful process of change. A process of transformation. It's this becoming this, becoming this, becoming this, becoming this. It's not that there's some element which is carried underneath it all. We can begin to understand karma I I think as as somebody mentioned, the Buddha said it's one of the things that if you think too much about, you know, you go crazy because it's too vast. How can we contemplate the fact that five lifetimes ago, you know, something happened and we're experiencing a result now? It would be very hard to trace that unless, you know, we had the mind of a Buddha. But there are ways that we can begin to understand karma which we're familiar with. But we can experience, very often, quite immediate results. The sense of what our experience is like when the mind is filled with a variety of mind states. And what is the experience like when it's filled with anger? What is it? What is it like when it's filled with joy? We're getting an immediate karmic feedback. It's not the whole picture, but we can begin to see a cause and effect relationship. The mind state conditions our experience. You may have also experienced karma in terms of the reliving of certain experiences in practice. You know, and Sometimes, just sitting, as the mind gets concentrated, some very powerful re-experiences happen. Either of very unwholesome things or very wholesome things, and we can experience the pain or the happiness that derives from having done those actions. So that's another way of understanding that the action doesn't end in itself. You know, we're, there's an impact, an imprint in the mind which is part of the process of the transformation. In terms of abortion and sort of the Buddhist understanding of it, not only that, but there's, a, there's a, another issue which is, which is one of Upandita's favorite topics which is the idea of mercy killing. I think it's very important to look very carefully at what is actually going on in the mind because that will reveal the skillfulness or the unskillfulness. And sometimes we use a nice word to describe something that we're not seeing very clearly. you know. And so it could be that in mercy killing, really what's happening is an expression of a very strong aversion in the mind to suffering, which is a very different mind state than compassion, but it can look like compassion. And so it takes a lot of delicacy. Now, Abortion too is a very complex issue and often there might be quite mixed motives. The act of killing is unwholesome. That's unskillful. If it's possible to bring in wholesome mind states around it, so it will mitigate to some extent the unwholesomeness of that act. There's one very powerful teaching about karma which is worth knowing about. The same action can bring about very different results dependent on the field that that seed is planted in. And so it's said that if a person has accumulated, or if there's a strong, wholesome field, a lot of wholesome actions, you know, either in generosity, of loving kindness, compassion, of meditation, of insight, of wisdom, unwholesome actions that we might have done have less power than if that seed is planted in a field developing skillful acts. There's a lot. Karma is very interesting to begin to just learn about because it has such a such an important impact on the unfolding of our lives. And it really enables us uh, to take a responsibility for the unfolding of our lives and the direction it goes in. Hmm. It's 30.) <laughs> All of these questions were really interesting.
0: What was the reply you gave your niece when she asked you why all these people
2: were doing these strange things? <laughs> strange people. (laughs) (laughs) I think really there is that place in everybody. Sometimes it's well covered or well defended, or but there's the place in everybody who really wants to understand, mm-hmm. which really wants to understand, and that's the conversation we got into. Of the practice being a way to understand, you know, what. What is this? What is this body? What is this mind? What is this life? Because it's so easy to go through life and it goes so quickly and never come to a profound understanding of the meaning of it, of what it's about. And I see that really as just the heart of all the effort that's being made. It's really the effort to understand because out of that understanding, out of that deep place of understanding, comes the connectedness, and comes the relatedness, and comes the compassion, comes the loving-kindness. So Again, going back to one of the early questions, if you can you know, recollect at times just that place of interest. You know, and it's it's simple. It's not complicated with a step, with a breath, with a sensation, with a feeling, with a thought, with an emotion. Just it's the practice of discovery. You know, and we get lots of moments of practice. Um, just then as we do it, the whole Dhamma unfolds for us. Well, let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please
1: visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.